And you see it when there's sons born to Adam and Eve. There's three sons, but it's not that one. It's not this one. It's Seth. And we keep going down, and the line of God, his, his chosen people, funnels down to this moment, to this one family. Terah from the line of Shem, from the line of Noah, from the line of Seth, from the line of Adam. And Terah's one of three sons, Abram. That funnel is really important. But of course, in God's story of humanity and salvation, it's not about that one person getting the prize. I'm getting ahead of myself, but next week we'll start to look at how God actually chose, he funneled down to this one man, this one family, because through him, the whole world would receive the blessing of God. Everybody could come to Christ through this family. That's what the rest of the Bible is about, and we'll talk about it more soon. So what we're going to do today is to try to gather up the stories that we've studied so far in Genesis 1 through 11 and get our minds around sort of the whole picture so that we can launch into this next section next week um, of the, the family of Abraham. So uh, here's the sort of sermon thesis, the, the big idea that we're going to look at today. God offers us his everything through our nothing, by his grace, and for his glory. God offers us his everything through our nothing, by his grace, and for his glory. Now we're going to pull that apart in light of the first 11 chapters of Genesis uh, in two points today. That's, that's where we're going. That's the map. So point number one, God's everything by his grace. What do I mean by God's everything? Someone asked me earlier this week, what, what do you even mean by the word blessing? Phenomenal question, because we use it really differently, especially in the American South. You sneeze, I say, bless you. You're finishing an email, God bless, John. <laughs> you know, you're being patronizing and bless her heart. We might throw around big, important words a little too cheaply. Um, <laughs> I lost my spot. <laughs> That's what happens when I enjoy seeing you guys. All right, so what we mean uh, when we say blessing is that for God to bless us is to give us joy, honor, and himself, his presence. God's blessing is joy and honor and his own presence. So in Genesis 1.28, we read, God blessed them. It's the first thing he does with humans. He creates them and then he blesses them. And said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's command of what to do, go be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue and have dominion, comes with his blessing. Those two go together. In other words, we've received honor from God, happiness in God, and the pleasure of his presence. And if that's true of us, then we can finally start to obey him wholeheartedly. Part of what it means that God offers us his everything is that he does all that. He gives us that joy, honor, presence, without us twisting his arm. Genesis 1.27 doesn't say that Adam first begged God for his blessing or worked really hard to prove that he was good enough for God's blessing. It was free 
and spontaneous and happy from the heart of God to bless people. So the reality is, even though we rarely and barely dare to believe it, that God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have lasting joy in him. God wants to dignify you. And he wants to give you his presence. He wants to be near you. But when God opens his arms to bless us, what do we do? Well, following Genesis 3 through 11, we eat forbidden fruit when he says not to. We murder our brother. We get drunk. We give in to lust. We build towers of self-sufficiency. In other words, God says, come be happy and satisfied in me. And we say, no, thank you very much. I've got a better idea. Because of Adam and Eve's first sin, we're all now born with the inclination to say no thanks to God. And therefore, no thanks to his blessing. To be clear, when people in the Reformed world talk about total depravity, you may have heard that phrase, we don't mean that everyone from birth is as bad as they could possibly be. We're not talking about absolute depravity, right? That there's no decent or light thing of us. We're talking about how, well, I don't know how to say it better than Ray Ortland says it. If sin were blue, every bit of us would be colored a little bit at some way, some shade of blue. There's no part of us untouched by that thing. In other words, in, in every aspect of our emotion and our will and our intellect, we are slightly at least tilted to say no thank you to God. So now, because of that inclination towards sin, that depravity, now we don't just need God's blessing, we need God's salvation before we can ever experience his blessing. So in Genesis 3.15, God promised a savior. We call it the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. He promised that someone would be born of woman, of Eve, and he would crush the head of the serpent, the serpent who keeps deceiving us with empty promises and false hope. So in Genesis 3.15, God speaks to the serpent. He's cursing him. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, the woman's seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now we've seen so far in the story of Genesis that sons keep being born to this woman's line. And we see through the story that some act like they're seeds of the serpent and some act like they're not, like they're seeds of promise. There's a glimmer of hope. So Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Cain follows the serpent's way and murders his brother. And so although Abel got murdered, God appointed another son, Seth, through whom the godly line could continue. Then you trace Seth's line down and you get to Noah, who again has three sons pattern is emerging. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham sinned against his father grievously. So Noah gave God's blessing to Shem and his family. So again, we see a funneling happening. But also in that funneling, you see that some are following the way of the serpent and some 
receive the blessing of God. That's what all these genealogies in Genesis are for. We've not read them in the service, but I hope that you take the time to read them all together. You know, you don't have to pause at every name, but read them together. Read the first 11 chapters of Genesis with those genealogies. Because it shows us, it reminds us that throughout all these generations, God preserves a line of the family through whom we can finally hold out hope for this promised Savior. One day there will be a seed, a man born from Eve's line, who will deal with the enemy of humanity. Someone who will save us from our sins and from the wrath and judgment that our sin deserves. That's the hope. And all of this comes as a gift. That hope. God could have just wiped us out. He could have said, failed experiment, didn't work. I'm done. No more humans. But because of who he is, because he is good, because he is loving, because of his loyal, steadfast, committed love, even though we kept rebelling against him, he kept pursuing us. He kept giving us hope. And that's what it means that God gives us his everything, is that he offers joy, honor, and his own presence, and promises the salvation that makes that even possible for us. It's actually grace from beginning to end. There's nothing, when I say grace, man, that, that's another word that just gets thrown around, isn't it? Say grace before the meal. Um, that's fine. It's not wrong, right? But when we talk about God's grace, we're talking about a gift so radically gift-like that there's nothing wage-like about it. It doesn't smell in the slightest of earning or deserving. And God's blessing and salvation comes to us by grace alone. So remember the kids' talk. The first, the first lie that we believe about sin is that sin's going to make us happy, right? The second lie that we believe is that our obedience then will make us happy, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like when we finally start believing that sin's bad for us, we go, okay, so if I want to be happy and have joy, then I have to stop doing the wrong things and start doing the right things, and then I'll be happy, right? Also a lie from the enemy. The truth is the blessing of God comes to us through someone else's obedience on our behalf. Adam should have crushed that snake. Serpent slithers into the garden, starts to talk. Your job is to work and keep the garden. Kill it. Get it out. But he didn't. So God appoints someone else who will. Our blessing comes through his obedience, not through our obedience. Now, I know I haven't mentioned Genesis 11 yet. Uh, we, will, we will get there. <laughs> Uh, so this passage that Emily read for us, it introduces us to Terah's family and then to Terah's son, Abram, and his barren wife, Sarai. And this moment is this key transition between the sort of prologue of Genesis, the first words of introduction, and the whole rest of the Bible. This is a look closely, reflect on what you've just learned, 
and think well on what, it, what that means for what's to come moment. The whole point is about how the promised Savior and the blessing of God would come into a rebellious world with power to actually save, to actually do something. Not just the hope of a blessing, but to actually bring the blessing. So, the blessing and salvation, that's what we mean by God's everything, by his grace. Now, let's look at point number two, our nothing for his glory. God gives us his everything through our nothing. That's what this story is here for. The question is, when it comes to receiving God's blessing and to receiving salvation, what do we bring to the table? We're very transactional people, right? Um, if, if you invite me over for dinner, I'm going to say, what can I bring? We're just used to it. So what do we bring to the table? Well, two basic things. Rebellion and inability. I don't want to and I can't. That's what we bring. Like when your room gets so messy, you give up. I can't clean this. And we've all been there. So first, let's think about rebellion, that we bring rebellion to the table. Now, um, in the story of Genesis, rebellion is just the M.O. It's what we do. It's what you can read each story and expect from the people. Rebellion, right? In the garden, God says, don't eat from the tree. Simple enough, right? And they immediately eat from the tree. In Genesis 4, God tells Cain, look, sin is... It's like sin's crouching outside the door ready to eat you. Just don't let, like, resist it. Do good instead of doing evil. And he immediately kills his brother. Genesis 9, God gave Noah and his family a fresh start. And Noah gets drunk. Had Ham does something sketchy, deviant. And in the beginning of Genesis 11, what we looked at last week, instead of obeying God's command to fill the earth, People gather and cluster at Babel in rebellion against God to say, we don't need you, and please bless our sin. So in all of these stories, the faithful to God are very few and very far between, and the status quo is rebellion. We tend to shake our fist at heaven more quickly than we would raise the empty hands of faith. And Terah's family and Abram's family and Sarai, they're no different than that. And I think that's actually really important. The rest of the Bible goes to uh, great care, takes great care, to let us know that Abram wasn't picked because he was so good. So Joshua 24, Joshua says to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So the founder of the whole Jewish faith was a pagan who did not worship Yahweh. That's what God called him out from. In fact, we know quite a bit about where they came from and what it was like. They were, you know, in the story that Emily read for us, they go from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran, right? Now, both of those places, Ur and Haran, were very well-known places of worship for the, what, the Sumerian uh, Sumerian moon god Nana, or in Akkadian they called him Sin, Sin. So they're going to these places that are just famous 
for moon god pagan cult worship. And in Abram's day, there was a really large ziggurat in Haran uh, built by King Ur-Namu that was dedicated to this moon god, Nana. And there was a whole kind of complex religion and religious system built around this pagan worship. And it included even like human sacrifice. So we, archaeologically, we, we have these remains. It's absolutely fascinating. We can look at their cemetery and, and see what their practices were like. And it wasn't virtuous. It wasn't good. And that's what Abram, the father of our faith, came from. It's who he was. He didn't know anything else. So remember, God says to Abram, and we'll look at this more next week, but God says to Abram, go from Ur, from your father's household and your kindred and Ur of the Chaldeans, and go to the land that I'll show you. And he's talking about the land of Canaan. And so on their way, Abraham starts to obey. Abram, at this point, starts to obey. He brings his family with him, Terah, and his, uh, his nephew, Lot. And they start obeying God and going into Canaan, and they get sidetracked and stop halfway at a place called Haran. Now, it doesn't say anything about Haran in this text uh, because it would assume that their early readers would know what we're talking about. Haran had a reputation, as some cities are you know, want to have. So, for instance, it would, by way of illustration, imagine God said, thou shalt not gamble. And the next story says, and they came and settled in the land of Las Vegas. I don't have to explain anything about Las Vegas to you to get the point that this isn't the place to go if you're seeking obedience to Yahweh. This is a wicked place of cultic worship. Even their family names show that they were invested in this false religion. Terah's name comes from the word for moon. Uh, Sarai was named after the god Nana's queen, Saratu. Her sister Milka was named after Malkatu, who was the daughter of this moon god, and so on. Frankly, you just don't get more pagan and non-Christian than Abram, than Sarai. So God, this is the story. This is the funnel moment. It's crucial. And here we come to the point where we're like, God wants to bless humanity and save humanity through a family that will follow him instead of the serpent. And who does he have to work with? Nothing but rebels. And all of us who now currently belong to Jesus are just no different. None of us started out better than that. Because God didn't look down on the earth and say, let me find some virtuous people that I can sprinkle you know, my Holy Spirit dust on to make a little bit better. Who are the clever people here? Who are the, the mighty people, the capable people? God looked down and said, who are the weakest who are the most stubborn? Those are the ones that I want. The least likely and the least capable. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses. Dead in our sins. So when it comes to receiving God's blessing, being made alive in Christ, finding salvation in Christ, all that we bring to the table is sin and rebellion. That's it. And that should make us marvel. That should give us awe in our hearts that a God so good 
would look at us and want to be with us. Do you ever think about your BC, your before Christ? Remember 19 BC, me before Christ. Such a mess. I'm still a mess. But I'm not rebelling anymore. I was so far from loving God and so far from loving other people. It was just, deadness is the only word I had to explain that. I brought nothing to the table. So now we're getting to the heart of Genesis 11. We bring rebellion, but we also bring inability. Oh, you may have already discussed this if you're in a home group, um, but it bears repeating. These verses that Emily read for us, uh, they form what's called a chiasm. And that's simply a way to say, uh, to organize a literary section in ancient literature that draws attention to what's in the middle, right? If you've ever seen um, a, a painting of, say, a sunrise over the water, you know there's that horizon line and it's reflected, you get the sky and the sunrise reflected back so that the image becomes kind of a symmetrical thing. And the focus is right there at the sunrise in the middle on the horizon. That's what a chiasm is like in text instead of in pictures. And here we find at the center of this chiasm, this line. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's what the, is at the middle of this text. That's the focus of this text. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting in light of the funneling down of the story of history so far? That God has determined that his promised Savior would come into the world through human multiplication. And now, this line that he's picked of Shem out of all the nations... And this family that he's picked of Terah out of all the, the families that are in Shem. And the son that he's picked from Terah's family out of all the sons can't have children. I hope you feel the tension of that story. That all of our hope and blessing is wrapped up in this one family and their ability to produce a seed who could crush the head of the serpent. And it's the one thing they can't do. God chooses the barren branch of the family tree to be the ones on whom he places the hope of the whole world. Why would he do that to us? Remember in the call to worship this morning, I said, the Lord be with you. And then you read, and also with you. And those of you who've been around for more than a few months went, huh? <laughs> because for a year we've been saying, and with your spirit. So we've all been practicing to expect this thing to happen. And when the thing happens that we're not expecting, we pay attention. That's what this story is meant to do on us. We're expecting children and one of them to be the line of hope. And now there can't be any children. Pay attention. In other words, God offers us his everything through our nothing for his glory. 
if God had chosen the most virtuous people in the world as his family line, wouldn't we be in danger of patting ourselves on the back? If he chose the people most capable of reproducing and having healthy children, wouldn't we be in danger of, I don't know, naturalism and saying, well, look at this, you know, marvel of the human body and what we can do on our own. Wouldn't we be able to take some sort of credit for salvation? But when God gives us his everything through our nothing, through our emptiness and our total inability to obey him, that's when he gets the glory. And when God gets the glory, that's when we get the joy. It's just, it's so much better that way. So by way of silly illustration, all I have are silly illustrations. When we were in Scotland, I got a mug. Uh, and so, you know, we're at the University of Glasgow and I went to the gift shop and picked out a mug that I really liked. And it's on my desk and I really like it. It's a good mug. But I didn't know this, that while we were in Edinburgh, Becca also got me a mug for a Christmas gift. So one, I went and, you know, bought for myself and I like it. And the other one I received as a gift from somebody that I love and who loves me. Which mug do you think I treasure? It's no contest. The one I received as a gift is so much more precious than the one that I chose for myself, the one that I paid for. Or, you know, when you get your paycheck in the mail, do you like dance around the house and sing praise to God? Or do you think, yes, this is what I deserve and I wish it were a little more? But if someone sends you a check for $1,000 and you weren't expecting it, maybe that's only a, a seventh of your paycheck. You're probably going to dance around the house a little bit. There's something about the joy of receiving a gift. This passage that highlights human inability to follow God, it's our introduction to God's rescue plan for the whole world. It all starts with our inability to provide what is needed, our inability to bring anything to the table of salvation and blessing. So all the beauty, all the blessing that flows from this family, and y'all, you can trace the best things in this world that society has done to this family. Medical advances, charity, every good social thing has some root in children of Abraham doing something for the name of Jesus. All the beauty and blessing that flows from this can be received with the pure joy of receiving a well-planned gift from someone who loves you. It's so much better that way. So last week we looked at the Tower of Babel and the whole earth gathered together to make a name for themselves. In other words, they said, we're powerful enough to take our future and God's blessing in our own hands. And God basically responds by saying, I can't work with that. And now in the next story, we come to the family of Abram and Sarai, the family to whom God says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. And they are powerless to secure their future. They are powerless to bring about God's blessing. And God said, 
That I can work with. There's a reason those stories are back to back. The thing is, the good news, bringing this into our moment now, is that Jesus still delights to bring people into his family who are the least likely to follow him and the least capable of following him. Just let God breathe his spirit of hope into your heart for a moment. For all of the weakness that we bear, for all the times that we feel that we let God down, and for all those we love who feel so far from God that it seems absolutely impossible. God gives his everything through our nothing, which means there is no nothing you have that is mightier than God. So if there's a sin in your life that you can't shake, how do you apply this? Well, we'll keep looking at this as we go on. But part of the answer for that is to practice not... Yes, practice righteousness. Do that. Do good things, of course. But practice first faith. Like Abram and Sarah, I had to learn. Jesus came through the line of Baron Sarai to obey God in all the ways that we couldn't. Paul calls that the power of God unto salvation, which means you need to be delivered from a sin, you need to be delivered from yourself. It starts with faith in the one who obeyed where you couldn't. And as we learn to love him, our obedience and righteousness that we practice flows out of that. Repentance starts by offering God our nothing and accepting Jesus' everything on our behalf. The Christian life itself begins that way. God seeks us out when we're furthest from him, when we're dead, and he gives us life. And he does it not by us earning and not by us deserving and not by any sort of merit. He does it by grace, through faith. That's it. So I'm just going to close by reading Paul's words from Ephesians 2. And you were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that again, because Paul just said that you were saved from your nothingness receiving God's everything for a reason. And he explains what that reason is with the two words, so that. 
Here's why Christ saved us. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus saved you so that he could keep loving you into eternity. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we have received from your hand so much more than we could have ever hoped for in Christ. And he did for us the hardest obedience that's ever been done on this planet. Resisted temptation to the point of sweating blood. And because of him, we get to just get your nearness. We have peace with you. We don't have to try to earn your smile anymore. Thank you for your gift of Jesus. We praise you. We love you. Amen.